Why, thank you. Yes, we can, and we will in this hour. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. My phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. Enjoyed that conversation immensely with Michael Steele, and I'm looking forward to a conversation just as good, just as rich, uh, just as insightful uh, in this hour. And in this hour, the hit Asian-led show, Beef, on Netflix has generated plenty of buzz since its premiere. Say nothing of the historic night for Asian representation at the Academy Awards earlier this year when the film Everything Everywhere All at Once won the Oscar for Best Picture with its bevy of Asian cast members. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And in this hour, we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Ho, the daughter of a refugee father from China and an immigrant mother from Jamaica, who is now a leading expert in the field of race and ethnicity studies. We will talk in this hour about what she calls racial ambiguity and explore the intersections of Asian American and black American culture. I am pleased to welcome Dr. Jennifer Ho to this program. Dr. Ho, how are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you for the time. I'm glad we have an hour. There's a lot to unpack in this hour. Um, let me just start by uh, asking a couple of broad questions and we'll narrow our way through this hour. Um, as an African-American, of course, um, we, we celebrate uh, every year uh, Black History Month in uh, in February. Uh, I always uh, uh, tease that uh, I don't know how they chose the, the coldest and shortest month of the year to give to us uh, for Black History Month. Uh, but when you think about May uh, and um, uh, the ways in which uh, the Asian community is regarded or not regarded, as it were, in this country politically, socially, economically, culturally, what does this month mean to you? Yeah, thanks for that question. I, I want to actually begin by maybe unpacking the term AAPI, if that's okay with you. Sure. Okay, so um, Asian American Pacific Islander, and I think that those are two different terms that we need to really understand, and especially for um, my Pacific Islander friends and colleagues who may be listening, I want to really acknowledge that um, Pacific Islander, that PI part of the AAPI, oftentimes gets left out that it gets subsumed to a larger Asian-American narrative, and that even Asian-Americans, right, like that is a really large term. We're talking about people from over 30 different countries, nationalities, ethnicities, um, different languages. And then if you add in the Pacific Islander part, we're talking about people from over 50 different um, nations. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when we hear Asian-American even, we're really, people often default to a kind of Chinese, Japanese, Korean perspective. Mm. And so I want to just really acknowledge that I am Chinese-American, and thus you could argue that even within the limited understanding of who Asian-Americans are, I get represented, right? Like, I get represented on things like everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, Whereas my Filipino, my Southeast Asian, my South Asian colleagues, may not see themselves represented so much. And certainly, we don't talk nearly enough about Pacific Islanders. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let me ask you how that reality, uh, again, back to my analogy, as, as a black man, uh, uh, we celebrate um, uh, Black History Month every February, and it's pretty clear, excuse me, it's pretty clear who we're talking about when we say Black History Month, right? We're talking about African Americans. Um, but to your point, given that there are over 50 different nations represented in this AAPI uh, acronym, if you will, how how does that complicate things? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Can I also editorialize and say that um, 
I I really think we should be we should be talking about Black African American issues every month. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm <laughs> no, I, I we, we do we do around okay. here. We, we do it every day around this radio yeah. station. But yeah, go ahead. No, I, and I <laughs> I appreciate that. I do. I appreciate that uh, because I agree. Like it should not be the shortest month of the year that yeah. we are talking about. Uh, you know, Black history in the United States. So. Um, yeah, I, I think what it means is that there is no such thing as a representative story. Mm. There's no, right, there's not going to be, but actually, I would argue that this is true for every racial group. So even, you know, where, you know, Tavis, you're talking about, you know, Black Americans, African Americans, and that story in the United States may be a little bit more, uh, you know, may, might have more universal elements to it than, say, having one single ethnicity represent Asian Americans, mm-hmm. but even within, you know, there, there's no such thing as the black experience, yeah. right? It really depends sure. on, you know, where in the United States, when in the United States, all sorts of different things. And so in some ways, just really starting there, right? We can talk about how, again, like a film, like everything, everywhere, all at once felt like it captured a lot of different people's experience, even if they didn't um, identify specifically with being um, you know, immigrants from Hong Kong or mm-hmm. Chinese Americans or, you know, working class. And I actually think that the more specific our stories are, the more universal they can become. So yeah. when I've done re- workshops and I've talked about my own background, which is within an Asian American context, a pretty unique background, right? So my mom actually um, grew up in Jamaica. I would have friends actually who'd come over to the house and say, like, your mom has this really weird accent. And I'd be like, no, she just has an accent that you're not connecting with somebody <laughs> with her face, right? Like, my mom has a Chinese-looking face, and she speaks Patois. And so there's this disconnect, right, when people meet my mom, because they're like, why is your mother talking so funny? I'm like, she's not talking funny. She's talking <laughs> with a Jamaican accent. Um, and if you know the history of Jamaica, that's not unusual. Yeah. But if you don't know the history of Jamaica and you think that Jamaica is only this country that is a black nation only or that it doesn't, you know, that it has a very complicated racial ethnic history, then meeting my mom is going to be unusual. But, um, you know, I, I will say that when I've shared my story, other people of a variety of races and ethnicities have also shared that they had similar things growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me ask you. I asked you a moment ago whether or not, um, or not, not, not whether, but how, in fact, that uh, that over fifty different uh, nation reality as a part of AAPI uh, can complicate things. Let me ask you another question. Then we'll come forward here. Whether or not there are those persons who are in that grouping, that large AAPI grouping who are offended by the fact that they all get grouped together. I've had occasion in my life on a number of different uh, uh, fronts, a number of realities, uh, to have to push back uh, about people trying to group me with X or group me with Y or group me with Z. Are, are, there, are, there, are there feelings of angst <laughs> uh, or, 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 or worse uh, by being uh, assumed to be X, Y, or Z because you're in this large group? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I would say that, you know, there's there's... There's a variety of, of reasons and reactions. So there are some who would say, I'm an American. I want to be identified as American. I don't want to be identified as AAPI because that doesn't capture my full experience and I should not have to justify that I'm a U.S. citizen, right? So that there's, that's one type of response. And then there's another type of response that says, I'm Vietnamese. I have a very distinct experience as somebody who is a Vietnamese-American um, whose family were refugees from the war in Vietnam. I don't feel like that the category of AAPI captures my distinct history. And then especially, again, when we're talking about Pacific Islanders and 
let's let's take for example Native Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. Native Hawaiians would say we have a very particular history related to settler colonialism that makes talking about our issues more similar to talking about Native American issues. And so we don't want to be lumped in to this AAPI category because it ignores the differential power relationship of the U.S. government relative to Hawaiian sovereignty. Mm. Um, I got a lot to talk to you about in this hour, and I'm glad we have the hour. Her name is Dr. Jennifer <laughs> Hole. Um, uh, May is uh, AAPI month. Um, uh, we're talking about um, some work that she's done uh, on what she calls racial ambiguity. We'll unpack that as we move through the hour. I'm really fascinated to get into a deeper dialogue about black Asian uh, American issues. So a lot to uh, get to in this hour with Dr. Jennifer Hole, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 15. All right, Dr. Jennifer Hole, let's get this party started. Um, so when you use the term racial ambiguity, unpack that for me, please. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we began with my family background, and I guess there was a way growing up that I never quite felt Chinese enough, mm. authentically Chinese, because I didn't grow up speaking either Mandarin or Cantonese, and because my mom did speak Patois. Um, and so I felt like I wasn't quite Asian sometimes, you know, that I didn't fit into a kind of typical narrative. And so that got me thinking about other people who I, in my book, I label racially ambiguous. And so among the types of people that I look at and stories that I look at in my book are transracial adoptees, right? People who are of Asian descent, who were born in Asian nations like Korea, China, Vietnam, who then get adopted into families in the United States, largely white families. Um, And then, of course, multiracial people. So um, I look at Tiger Woods. I look at other mixed-race figures, novels written about mixed-race Asian-American people. Um, And Tiger in particular is really interesting because, um, especially early in his career, he was almost always referred to as a black golfer, Mm -hmm. which he is. But he's also a black and Thai golfer. He's also Asian-American, even though he very rarely will only be described as Asian-American. And it's similar to Kamala Harris, that, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of people were asking, like, who is she? And, and I actually wrote a, an opinion piece about this. You know, Kamala Harris gets to identify however she wants. She gets to be both and. Um, I, I just think that the United States, unfortunately, has a problem of wanting to put people in boxes, and especially for mixed-race people, people who are racially ambiguous, who can move throughout different racial and ethnic registers, they don't want to be put into a single box because that doesn't capture their full story, their full humanity. Mm. Um, let me let me press you, um, and I'm only pressing to get the best out of you in this hour. Um, sure. So sure. Let, me, let me press on this. I am not so sure I buy your belief, uh, your sentiment, that we do, in fact, get to identify however we want. And I, I, you see where I'm going with this. I raise that because yep. there are societal norms, there are societal pressures, there are societal expectations, there are societal frames. Pick your phrase. I'm not so sure we get to identify however we want. Uh, I recall I interviewed Tiger uh, many years ago in his career. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I interviewed him early on in his career. Uh, and he made this point to me that he was, um, I, I don't know how he pronounces it. I think he said Asian, made up his own word. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. not black. I'm not that. I'm a Asian. I'm this. I'm that. I'm all of this. He didn't want to be called African-American. Okay, Tiger, that's your business. But when Fuzzy Zeller wanted to offend Tiger Woods when he won the Masters the first time, and the Masters winners, you may know, gets to pick the meal 
Fuzzy Zeller uh-huh. made a joke uh-huh. about them eating fried chicken and collard greens because Tiger had won and got to pick the meal uh, for the big dinner. So you can call yourself a combination Tiger, so you can identify the way you want, but not really. Uh, Kamala Harris can identify how she wants, but not really. She's still regarded as the first African-American vice president uh, of these United States. So I'm not sure I buy the argument that we really, truly can identify however we want. Your thoughts? So I appreciate you bringing that up because I think there is a reality of the way that white supremacy operates in the United States that has coded people optically, particularly when they are black identified, into a box in which they, they are seemingly trapped. Yep. And I want to say seemingly because... When Tiger Woods has been interviewed about this, now I don't know that I, um, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt by saying, you know, he was a young man when he came up with this phrase, Cablination, and, um, you know, had his own reasons uh, for wanting to maybe use that term or wanting to not solely identify as black, right? But he did make, you know, he did get interviewed and he said this, which really kind of stuck with me and stuck with a lot of other um, mixed race scholars and activists. He said, look, if I deny my Thai heritage, if I deny that I am also part Asian, I deny my mother. Yes. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to deny the relationship I have with my mother and the role that my mother and her culture has played in my life. And I think that's a really, that is a very compelling argument. And um, Dr. Maria Root has something called the mixed race bill of rights. So, I agree with you. I think that there are pressures that black Americans in particular have vis-a-vis white supremacy that make it unrealistic to think that if optically someone can identify identify you as black currently, um, then can you ever talk your way out of that label is maybe one way to put it, right? Can you, if Kamala Harris said, like, look, I just want people to think of me as Indian American, which, by the way, she doesn't. Mm -hmm. She's never, right, just to be clear, she has never said, I only want to be understood as Indian American. She's very proud to be black American. She went to Howard University, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I think, you know, I guess what I would say as a scholar is that, I want to I want to enable people to identify the way that they choose to identify. So while there's a reality of how people are going to interact with you, there's also, I think, a reality of how people may want to live their lives. And I, you know, this is again, I want to be careful in making this analogy because I'm not trying to equate gender identity with racial identity. They're very different. Mm -hmm. But I think once upon a time we'd say the same thing about gender, right? We'd say there are two genders. There's male and female, you have to choose. And I think what transgender and non-binary people and activists have shown us is that you can push back against society. It may take a while. It may take a long, long time. There may be people who don't believe you. But if you feel like neither one of these categories really encompasses the depth of humanity that you have and the label that you have for yourself, then I think it's worth thinking about what could we do as a society to enable people to really embrace labels that they feel capture their humanity? Mm. Yeah, this is getting rich. Uh, <laughs> this is gonna be, it's going to be quite the hour. Uh, it's getting rich. Uh, so as you were talking, three or four things ran through my head. Let me see if I can keep up with my own brain. Um, so, so, so the first thing I think that ran through my, my brain was this. 
uh, I sometimes feel for my own people, black people, because I, be- I believe there are times because we have been denied so much in, in this country. I said earlier uh, in our program uh, last hour that black folk have learned that have learned to love this country in spite of, not because of. So we've been denied so much in this country that I think that we have these aspirations that lead us oftentimes to claim people who don't even want to be claimed by us. Uh-huh. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate Tiger at all. What I'm saying is that Tiger is very clear. I've said it. You've said it. Most importantly, he's said it. Tiger does not want to be seen as just a black man. Uh, Kamala Harris, to your other example, is not just a black woman. Uh, and so uh, the, the point I'm pushing toward here is that that oftentimes, it, it, with regard to our own aspirations, we want to claim people uh, because it furthers uh, the, the, the narrative that we can do anything if given the opportunity. And so we'll claim Tiger Woods as black. We will claim Kamala as black. There are other examples I can give if I had the time. I don't need to. You take my point. What say you about that reality uh, that I think is connected to the aspirations, the hopes and the dreams that black people have to be seen as being capable of doing everything, even if the person doing it doesn't necessarily want to be identified as just black? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I would say, right, I'm not a black identified person, so I would, so I'm never gonna, you know, try and say, oh, sure, I sure, think, sure. you know, black people should do this or the black community should do that, right? So first of all, I would say um, that Kamala Harris and Tiger Woods are black, and that there's nothing wrong. Like, let me be clear, there is nothing wrong with talking about them as black people. I think what I'm suggesting is that it is also okay to refer to them as Asian American and black. Mm-hmm. And what my, what my book tries to hypothesize is what would happen if we actually said they're Asian American and not just talk about them as both Asian American and black. I don't know that anyone has. Let me be clear. I don't know that anyone has ever only talked about Tiger Woods as a Asian American, Thai American. And I certainly don't know anyone who's only talked about Kamala Harris Solely through an Indian American lens, they, that there's always been an understanding and a recognition that she is Indian American and Black American. But that, but that's, but that, but, I, but, but that's my hypothesis. That that is that that is exactly yeah. my hypothesis. That if you did that, and I love the way you're thinking, I love the way you're reframing this for me. If you did that, then Black folk on demand lose. If we can't claim them as ours to show that we can be the best golfer in the world, to be vice president as a as a Black woman, then we end up losing. That that hypothesis is exactly my point. But I guess I would I would counter with saying that I don't know. Okay, so first of all, just realistically, that, that's never going to happen right? sure. because of the way that race, <laughs> agreed. Race is in the United States. Okay, okay. Agreed, but but yeah. let's just this is a thought experiment, right? Sure, so sure. Let's imagine that that happens, right? I would say that's only going to. So again, I would argue the only way for that to happen is for us as a nation have actually addressed white supremacy uh. because the enemy in the room, right? The, the, the common enemy is not right. Asian Americans are not the enemy to black Americans and mm-hmm. vice versa. The common enemy is white supremacy and white supremacy, by the way, is the enemy. And you know, this Tavis, white supremacy is the enemy of white people. Mm-hmm. It's just that a lot of white people haven't figured this out yet. Some have, right. Some are trying, mm-hmm. but like when I talk about white supremacy, it will sometimes drive drive people a little crazy, right? Because they think I'm talking about white people. And I'm actually not. I'm not talking about white people. I am talking about an ideology. Mm-hmm. I am talking about 
a power system that has meant that there's a racial hierarchy in the United States where white people have privilege and they have power, and then other races through different times, right, have been up and down that scale. But usually white is on top and black is on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Nope, I hear your point. Um, it's hard, though, for people to hear that distinction, is it not? Oh, it's, I get hate mail on, on the regular because mm -hmm. I try to make this distinction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder how much more progress, um, I want to follow you uh, throughout this entire conversation. I wonder how much more progress you think we could make on the issue of racism, as it were, uh, discrimination, prejudice in this country, if we could, in fact, make the clear distinction that you're making in this conversation between an ideology and a people. Yeah, I mean, that's why I continue to try and, you know, I've moved away from, I mean, I still publish, pub, I still publish academic work, but I'm really trying to move towards doing more public facing work to be able to have the platform, right? Like, I'm so grateful that you're having me on your show so I can talk about these issues because I think if we truly as a nation, like, this is why, you know, and I'm, now I'm editorializing, this is why that all of these bills banning critical race theory and these anti-woke bills and banning books make no sense to me because at heart what educators want to do is what we were trained to do, which is simply to share knowledge with students. That's all we want to do, right? Share knowledge. And we should not. The fact that some people think the United States is so fragile that they can't handle the truth mm. is, I think, very unpatriotic and insulting, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, and it's insulting to young white students. The fact that they think young white students can't handle the truth about the United States is quite frankly insulting to young white people. Right. Nope, I take your point. Um, I'm glad we got an, got an hour here uh, because there's so much more in my brain uh, that I want to uh, probe uh, Dr. Jennifer Ho about when we come forward after news, uh, traffic, and sports um, as we continue our conversation about racial ambiguity in this country, and particularly, which I want to get more, uh, uh, get deeper into, this relationship between uh, black and Asians, uh, black and Asian issues, if you will. And I'm just kind of laughing at myself two or three times now. She said, here I go editorializing again. Dr. Ho, it's okay. It's talk radio. That's what we do. We editorialize all day long on KBLA Talk 1580. Oh, this thing is getting good with Dr. Jennifer Ho as we talk in this hour about racial ambiguity. Couldn't wait to get back uh, live on the microphone uh, and to hear more from her. Um, uh, she's an expert at what she calls or what she terms racial ambiguity, and that's what we are talking about uh, in this hour. It occurred to me, uh, Dr. Ho, during that break, um, as I was thinking about a number of things I want to uh, get you to unpack for us between now and the top of the hour, that when it comes to this notion of racial ambiguity, which the census is making more and more plausible to uh, to advance, more and more possible to advance, and you can pretty much, as you said earlier, uh, you, we were talking about self-identifying. You can pretty much these days self-identify every 10 years any way you choose on the census. That said, and I've talked about this before uh, in other conversations, I'm concerned about that because when we allow people, and I am mad at the right to self-determination, but when we allow people to self-identify uh, on the census form, for example, um, it, it waters down the particular numbers in a particular community. And when those numbers get watered down, then that particular community, as you know, doesn't get the resources that it, that it deserves and warrants because the numbers have been watered down. So if you are an African-American, for example, 
um, the, the one drop rule notwithstanding, if you are an African-American and you, and you fill out your Census Bureau in a particular way, it is very possible that the community in which you live as an African-American uh, may not get the resources it deserves because too many people now are choosing to self-identify. You're watering those numbers down, and then the numbers is how the resources are defined, and those resources end up not coming to those communities. Does any of that make any sense to you? Absolutely. So the first thing I, I would say is that we need to have better measures. So uh, what you're saying is maybe true under the current way that the census catalogs and um, and collects racial census data. Mm-hmm. But there are there are scholars who are actually working on this and trying to work with the OMB in um, creating better ways to capture the complexity of multiracial people. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Ibram Kendi, I'm sure you've heard of him, sure. and he's the director <laughs> of the Center of Race and Ethnicity Studies at Boston University. So mm-hmm. his team is actually working on this actively. Um, and consulting with the, with the OMB to try and, again, come up with better measurements so that people can both identify multiracially, right? Again, let's, let's stick with the Kamala Harris example, right? Where Kamala Harris could check off two boxes, um, both black and maybe even more granularly, right? Could check off Jamaican um, and Indian American. And that wouldn't negatively impact the sense of how many black people how many Indian American people are in the United States, where it wouldn't be a competition. It would be a way of collecting a more accurate sense of both multiracial people, but then who is actually living in these communities. Um, And though you haven't brought this up yet, I I do want to acknowledge that, you know, I do think that self-identifying people can self-identify racially. And we know of cases of people racially passing. And racially, you know, white people racially passing and mm-hmm. that are hugely problematic. Like this happens in the academic sphere. It happened where um, you might have heard the phrase pretendian, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's not Indian American, Native American, who says, you know, I have Cherokee background. And then you find out that they're not an enrolled member. Um, so, again, what I would say is those examples shouldn't prevent us from actually not being afraid to think of better and different ways yeah. to talk about race and racism and racial categorization. Yeah. When you said pretending in my mind went to Donald Trump and his calling, uh, uh, Senator Warren Pocahontas <laughs> when, uh, when that well, campaign I mean, was yeah. Yeah. That's a different topic to get on. But. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And I won't go there, but my mind went there. Uh, I won't go there in this conversation, but I certainly uh, drifted uh, to that, that memory of Donald Trump, um, referring her to that way. Uh, speaking of uh, racial ambiguity, um, l- let me ask this question. And here's a big question. Um, what do you think uh, writ large? I promise it was a big question. What do you think writ large the black perception is of Asians? I've had many conversations in my career about what black folk think of Latinos, particularly here in California, uh, in L.A. specifically, uh, where this radio station is flagship heard across the country, but based here in L.A., of course. Um, and so we've had any number of conversations. There have been all kinds of books and documentaries and articles and just uh, fascinating conversations about the black-brown thing. But what do you think, uh, writ large, the black perception is of Asians these days? And I ask that against the backdrop of the news that we all saw this week when that uh, former Minneapolis police officer, Officer Tao, I believe is his name, the Asian-American man, 
uh, who held back the bystanders while his colleagues were strained and ultimately killed uh, George Floyd, obviously a black man, Derek Chauvin in particular, uh, but he uh, was sentenced uh, this week. Uh, and so a lot of people saw him standing there and not doing anything about what was happening to this black man as a person of color. There are all kinds of questions about why, as a person of color, you thought it was OK to sort of look the other way. Um, he had some comments earlier this week I won't get into right now. He said he was looking the other way. He didn't really know what was going on behind his back, yada, 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 yada. But we all saw him on that tape uh, looking askew, looking askance, not doing what should have been done. In that moment, all that said, since that story came out again this week regarding his sentencing, what do you think writ large the black perception is of Asian people? I'm guessing that there's not a lot of trust, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I I think there's some good reasons for that. But I also think that the the real history of black and Asian Americans in this country is is far more complex Mm -hmm. than me saying there's not a lot of trust. So, you know, the first thing I'll start with is saying is there anti-black racism in the Asian American community? A hundred percent, right? I would never deny that. But is this also a story that is much more complicated than just saying that Asian people are racist to black people? Oh yeah, this is much more complicated. And again, I would point to the actual lived experiences of mixed race black and Asian people as one example of that, right? As well as those of us who have, you know, there are black people who have Asian family members and friends that they love dearly. They're Asian people who have black family members and friends that they love dearly. So I think if you're asking me in general, yeah, there's a definite mistrust and there's some really, really valid reasons for that. But I, I, I guess what I want, I know, I know I'm going to sound like a Pollyanna or like, you know, my glass is half full, but I guess I just feel like I believe in trying to tell more accurate stories and that we also kind of need stories that are, that are hopeful, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than just, you know, here are all the ways that we've seen um, Asian people be racist towards black people. Yes, those stories need to be told. And let's talk about Grace Lee Boggs. Yes. You know, love her. People need to know who she is. Loved yeah. her, loved her, loved her, yes. Now, she's an amazing, amazing American. Um, interviewed her. Um, one of the last interviews of her life uh, was on my. Oh, wow. Yeah, on my PBS program. I got her to actually come to L.A., believe it or not. Um, <laughs> she left Detroit uh, in her 90s and came to Los Angeles for a sit down conversation with me. Wow. Uh, Grace Lee Boggs, one of the great moments of my life, having the opportunity to talk to this woman who was so close to Malcolm X and others. Uh, but just an amazing conversation with uh, with uh, with Grace Lee Boggs. When we come forward, um, I want I'm looking at my clock. If I ask you this question, now, it ain't going to give you enough time to respond to it. Um, but there are two things I want to do. One, I want you to share with the audience the story that I'm aware of from your Twitter thread about this incident you had with a white Vietnam veteran. I don't want color the question, pardon the pun, any more than that. But I want um, Dr. Jennifer Ho to tell the story of this incident she had with this white Vietnam veteran. You'll want to hear this story. It's a fascinating story. I also want to get her take on, uh, uh, broadly speaking, what she thinks of the representation of, of Asian Americans in, in, in popular culture these days. Uh, May is AAPI month, uh, Asian American Pacific, Pacific Islander uh, Heritage Month. And so we're celebrating that this month in conversation with Dr. Ho as we talk about racial ambiguity. Uh, but of late, I mentioned earlier the Academy Awards, um, a couple hit TV shows, Beef on Netflix. It seems, it seems, it seems that the Asian community is finally starting to get some respect in popular culture. Am I overreading it? Uh, uh, or or otherwise. Uh, we'll get her thoughts to those issues and a, and a bit more when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Jennifer Ho, tell me the story. Uh, tell the audience the story of this incident you have with this white Vietnam vet. 
Yeah, so this was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was a PEN America event. Uh, I was in conversation with Randall Kennedy, one of the leading uh, scholars of uh, the First Amendment race. Um, absolutely brilliant, a mm-hmm. career high for me. And we were talking about hate speech. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about the First Amendment and hate speech. And, I, and in my remarks, I talked about um, Asian slurs, racial slurs used against Asian people, and, and some in particular. And I, I'm kind of hesitant to repeat them out loud, but, you know, they begin with a CH, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I think people can understand what that slur mm-hmm. is. Others begin with a G-O, right? So, you know, I'm talking about that, and I'm talking about, yes, people may have a First Amendment right to this speech. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Um, so at the reception, there's an older white American man who comes up to me and says he has a question. And, he, and he, starts, he starts the conversation by saying, when I was in Vietnam... I killed a lot of slant-eyed people. And he takes his two index fingers as if to pull down the edges of his eyes. And again, if you are Asian-American, you have undoubtedly had this gesture made against you as a, as a, as a racist gesture, right? Mm-hmm. And then he proceeds to tell me that they had a lot of names for people. In Vietnam, they called them Charlie. And then he proceeds to use the G word and the CH word. And I'm standing there and thinking, what is happening to me? Am I getting punked? You know, mm-hmm. I've just had this really rich conversation with Randall Kennedy about hate speech and the First Amendment. And is this guy just exercising his First Amendment right to tell me he killed a lot of people in Vietnam during the war and that he had all sorts of racial epithets that he used to kill them? Um, it seems the point he was trying to make was that even though they were called these names, he and others always treated them as if they were individuals, and that nowadays people don't, shouldn't have to rely on a group identity. All they need to do is assert themselves as individuals to be treated as individuals. To which point, at this point, I'm so confused, and I mm. just say, well, I, I think that's true for some people more than it is for other people. Um, and, and then luckily, I was actually rescued by one of uh, the white attendees, this, this really lovely woman named Liz, who I think could see the distress on my face and did what good active bystanders do, right? Mm-hmm. Comes over, interrupts the conversation, talks to me, doesn't address... I don't think she had heard any of the kind of racist comments he made, but I mean, just simply inserting herself literally between him and me and then changing the conversation made him go away. And I was just really grateful to her for doing that. Mm. Um, there was this moment um, not too, too long ago, sadly, where all these Asian hate crimes were jumping off like crazy. Every other day, it seemed, um, there was another um, uh, hate crime directed specifically at the Asian community. Um, you'll recall, the audience will recall that moment. Not to suggest that it doesn't happen here and there from time to time around the country, but there was this moment every other day, it seemed. Uh, there was a national mm-hmm. story about um, uh, Asian Asian hate. Um, as you look back on that, uh, how do you process that moment uh, in the rearview mirror? I would say that the fans of that hate got flamed by the person who was in the White House at the time, mm-hmm. and that using phrases like kung flu was not helpful in any way, shape, or form. And I think it's part of a larger history of yellow peril rhetoric where um, in times of crises, when an Asian nation is involved, people will then scapegoat and target Asian people. So yeah. it was not surprising. Yep. How, how does the Asian community um, writ large respond, process, um, 
that kind of hate. And I, and I, and I ask that because we're talking about, you know, black Asian relations. When black folk get put upon, you're going to hear from us. We're going to take to the streets. We're going to protest. <laughs> we'll get on the radio. We'll get on television. We'll do whatever we have to do. You're not going to punk. You, you, you mentioned earlier whether or not you were getting punked by this guy. Black folk ain't going out like that. We are not going to get punked when we think that you are uh, in any way disrespecting us. And yet, outside of that moment, I don't know that I can uh, give an example uh, or certainly an uh, uh, write a narrative about the the public ways in which the Asian community pushes back against that kind of vitriol. I think Atlanta, the Atlanta spa shooting that happened in March of 2021 mm-hmm. was a moment of reckoning for a lot of Asian Americans. Yeah. Um, certainly in, in cities. So Los Angeles, New York, Boston, Atlanta, certainly. Um, and while they were largely Asian American driven, there were all sorts of people. There were black, there were white, there were, you know, Latinx people who came mm-hmm. and also protested the shootings and, and the underlying and the underlying anti-Asian racism and and really the white supremacy, right? That really runs underneath all of this. Um, and so, you know, it's it's difficult, I would say, for Asian Americans because I, as I talked about in the top of the hour, we're talking about people from you know thirty different sure. nations, countries, cultures, and. And again, Pacific Islanders adds that number to over 50. So it's, there's not really a unifying, there's not a unifying history, yeah. right? There's not a single history of yeah. Asian Americans in this country that makes it easy to rally together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the COVID-19 pandemic and the, and the, as you said, it seemed like every other day there was, uh, you know, some really violent attack that happened, um, did help. Asian Americans kind of understand the larger history of yeah. Asian American discrimination. Nope, I receive it. Uh, when we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Jennifer Holes, we talk about as we talk about racial ambiguity, I want to close uh, by getting her thoughts on um, the impact uh, felt today in real time uh, of cultural representation in popular media uh, by the Asian or of the Asian uh, community. Um, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the hour, in case you weren't tuned in, they had a big night at the Academy Awards. Um, uh, and um, there's a hit show right now on, on Netflix called Beef, so it would seem, once again, that they're making some strides in the ways in which they have been represented or are represented in mainstream media in popular culture. we got our uh, thoughts on that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Jennifer Hogue, got about three minutes left here. Let me try to do two things right quick. Uh, first, uh, a note from one of our listeners I want to get your take on right quick, then we'll move to the Hollywood issue. The narrative that people get to decide how they want to uh, racially identify, I'm sorry, try it again. The narrative that people get to decide how they want to identify racially based on how they feel is dangerous. It not only denigrates culture and the related level of discrimination and trauma people experience, it legitimizes cultural appropriation. And that, particularly when it is race-based, is an affront to all people of color. Your thoughts? I guess I would say, without knowing particulars, I would disagree because I think cultural appropriation is different than mixed-race people identifying. Mm, fair enough. Um, I take it. Thank you for that response. Uh, in the time that we have left, it's kind of tight. Um, so uh, finally, to the issue of um, cultural representation, uh, broadly speaking, how do you think the Asian community is being represented in real time um, these days? Better. Yeah. But could use some improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I, love, I, love, I love the, the brief answers. Uh, when you say c- could use some improvement, um, when, where, and how do you see that coming, if, if you see it coming? 
I think it might be coming. I think we need more Asian American creatives, both in front and in, and behind the scenes, uh, writing, producing, directing. Um, and that even within the category, again, Asian American, right? We need to have the stories of Asian American groups that we don't just get to routinely see. So, you know, we need non-East Asian people. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, finally, here in uh, 60 seconds, we are moving toward that day um, uh, that uh, America, for the first time ever, will be a nation made up of people of color uh, in the majority uh, and not a group of minorities, as it were. So they call it a majority, uh, a minority America. Um, in in light of that 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 trek that we are making toward that day, what do you think ultimately, uh, not ultimately, but what do you think the future holds for the relations between black folk and Asian folk? Again, I would hope that what we understand is that we have a common problem, which is white supremacy. And if we can find a way to work together on that front, I think a lot of good progress can be made. She's written some great books. Um, One I certainly want to recommend is Racial Ambiguity in Asian American Culture. Uh, No better person to talk about um, uh, today as we celebrate AAPI Month uh, than Dr. Jennifer Ho, who I've been honored and delighted to have engaged in dialogue for this hour. Dr. Ho, good to have you on. All the best, uh, best to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. My great honor to have you on. Uh, Hour three of Tavis Smiley, after news, traffic, and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15.